Recently, I announced that episode 400 of Stageworthy will be the last episode. I published some of my reasons why on a blog post, both on my website and on Stageworthy, and you can go there and you can go there to read that. There are a lot of reasons behind a lot of which as I've been doing this nonstop, except for a couple of short breaks for eight years. Financially, it's a huge drain because I don't make any money from the podcast. But you can read all about that on both my website, philrickaby.com or on stageworthy.ca. You should know that I don't regret a second of doing this podcast and I have loved every second of it. That is to say that this is now the countdown to the last episode. This is four episodes until the last episode of Stageworthy, which will happen in episode 400, which will come out on February 13th. So please enjoy these final few episodes of Stageworthy as a regular podcast. And I want to say to you as a listener, whether you're an occasional listener or a regular listener, thank you so much for listening. It means a lot. And if if there was anything you were going to do, if you wanted to say goodbye to this podcast in some way, the best way for you to do that, if you have never done so, is to review it on uh, all of the usual podcast places that allow reviews like Apple Podcasts and the rest. Or if you just want to send me a message and say hi or whatever, you can uh, do that. You can find the, the contact form on my website or on Stageworthy. I'll get both. Thank you so much for listening. And I appreciate you giving me your time. I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be... Stageworthy. Deborah Drakeford has been a freelance actor for 35 years, is a resident artist of Actors Repertory Company, or ARC, for 18 years, and co-artistic producer of ARC since 2020. She joined me to talk about ARC's production of Rockabye, running January 26th to February 11th at Toronto's Factory Theatre. In this conversation, we talk about playing a rock star, ARC's unique community collaborators process, the Canadian theatre landscape post-pandemic, and much more. Here's our conversation. I want to start out by talking about Rockabye. <laughs> Just to jump into the big topic right off the top, what's can, can you tell me? What can you tell me about Rockabye? Well, I don't want to give anything away per se, um, but Rockabye is written by an Australian playwright, Joanna Murray Smith, and we are uh, super excited about this ensemble piece. Um, the tagline for the show is capitalism, race, and pop culture, you know, the small stuff. So I think that uh, I love that tagline because it gives such a, a great idea of where this play, this story might be going. It's uh, it's funny. 
It's rich, it's dramatic, it's timely, and it's going to offer up big, big conversations. It's um, it's about an aging rock star who is trying to make a comeback, and she's on the precipice of doing that and working hard with her manager to achieve that. And it's not quite enough. And so she goes down another road. And I'm in my brain as I'm telling you this, Phil, I'm going, I wonder how much I can give away. But um, (laughs) she wants something more. And uh, what she wants opens up big conversations about capitalism, about love, about whose story is whose, uh, about racism. It's um, it's a very provocative, very funny, very challenging piece, and I'm so excited that we get to present the Canadian premiere, and I'm excited by this incredible team that we've got assembled. Yeah. Now, now you you, you said aging rock star, but what era is this rock star? <laughs> what was what was their heyday? So. I'm playing that aging rock star. Thanks very much. Um, so Sydney Jones. <laughs> you know, I like a challenge. Why not? <laughs> Sydney Jones um it has hit it big in that like in the late 80s, early 90s, when she was a young person mm-hmm. and um hit it big really fast and really hard. And has sort of been floating. She's been around, but has been kind of floating ever since. And she has finally come up with this other album that people are saying, yes, this is the next album in Sydney Jones's um, career. And it's a much more mature, much more um, thoughtful album. Uh, but yeah, she's one of those rock stars, you know, who just hit it big really fast and probably too young and didn't know what to do with all of that. And then kind of coasted on that for a very long time. <laughs> that is I mean, that is in itself is a is a tale as old as well. The beginning of rock and roll and probably probably music itself. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can think of of, of several. You know, maybe the, there are many examples of somebody who, you know, they had a few hits. Rick Astley comes to mind as somebody who, oh my know, gosh, yeah, like had yeah. like one like the big hit, and then you know a, a couple of subsequent ones, and then nothing, and then suddenly, thanks to a joke on the internet, uh, he sort of gets to have his uh, some time in in the sun again. But there are other uh, other uh, people who who sort of disappeared for a while, and then all of a sudden, uh, they're they're back in the in the now. Um, yeah, I mean, thanks to technology yeah. and thanks to, you know, and, you know, TV shows, right? Suddenly using these music themes and suddenly that becomes a big thing. Like I think of Kate Bush on um, Stranger Things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not that she was a one hit wonder. I love Kate Bush. <laughs> no, Kate Bush was far from a one hit wonder, but it was it's it's one of those like she she was sort of, you know, she wasn't huge in North America. I think she was bigger mm-hmm. in England. Um, yeah. But, you know, there was a certain subset of of maybe more gothy people who really appreciated the Kate Bush sound in the 80s or some, you know, poetic artsy types. Um, I think that's really what uh, where she where she sort of sat in the in, in the zeitgeist. And then 
all of a sudden this show comes up and suddenly um she's all over she's all of, everywhere, everywhere again yeah she's yeah. everywhere yeah yeah some of the um pop stars that i was looking at and researching as i was uh preparing for rehearsals for uh rockabye were people like pat benatar mm-hmm. and and also people like annie lennox and because looking at pat benatar and looking at her old videos which are just delicious and immediately take me back to high school <laughs> in a very happy way <laughs> and also going wow i really really tried to make my hair do that as well <laughs> um <laughs> and then <laughs> oh it was not good in espanola ontario phil it was not good <laughs> the wall of hair you know oh, the yes. whole thing oh yeah that that, that is when that is when i grew i was in high school at the same time so um uh, I under I know the feeling of like of how much hairspray and hair product we're putting oh, in our gosh. hair at the time, trying to to have the biggest hair possible. The biggest hair possible, and also for for us young women, uh, I remember I I left this phase quite quickly, thank goodness. But I remember mascara and eyeliner every day. And not washing it off at night and just adding more to it the following day so that by the end of the week, you could barely open up your eyes because our eyelashes were sticking together so concretely. Nobody was time. nobody was telling us how to do anything. We, we no. couldn't go. We couldn't go on the internet to find out how to do it right. So we were making I know. all of these terrible choices. I well, had... exactly. There was there was no TikTok no. sensation going. Here's how you apply. Not a not yeah. a thing. Not even a how to no. video or or article. And I, you know, at the time that time, you know, I wanted to have like big hair, but I had like really thin. My hair was not me too. We couldn't do. I wanted. I wanted Robert Smith from The Cure hair, like early, early The Cure, <laughs> and I just didn't have the hair for it. And no matter what I did, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah, yeah. But I've got the fabulous Jackie Chow, who's one of our um, art resident artists, doing set and costumes. And she and I have been talking hair, mm. and I'm excited. <laughs> There's going to be some product. There's going to be some zhuzhing. I can't wait. <laughs> it's always great when you have when you have somebody to do that for you. To to actually just tell me what to do. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm an actor. Just, you know. <laughs> yeah, and now, but uh, also, it, sorry. In the, in I was the, just going to say, no, go like, ahead. in terms of um, my characters, Sydney's storyline so looking at that pat benatar and all of that amazingness from the late 80s early 90s and also looking at someone like annie lennox who i think is astonishing Mm. and always has been astonishing Mm -hmm. and now she is this older woman who is who appears to be so in control of her whole thing her life her story Mm -hmm. her music her artistry and um so for darling sydney jones my character i'm i'm hoping that she finds her way to her annie lennox days <laughs> <laughs> i mean annie lennox i mean you could you could we could go down like a rock, rabbit hole of like great uh women rock stars but annie lennox oh. had like that like her her time in the sun both with eurythmics and on her own were 
was, mm-hmm. was just massive. And I think the first time I don't even this is this is for anybody turning in the first time. This is not usually an eighties uh, nineties uh, uh, rock show. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think anybody knew what to make of her at first. Her and 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 in 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 Eurythmics. I I don't think anybody knew what to make of her. And then all of a sudden, it just she just kept doing what she was doing, and then suddenly it snapped, and it was like, okay, this is yeah. it makes sense. Doing it so unapologetically, yeah, and just uh, embracing that, and like her androgyny and and her her sense of style and her that voice. Oh, come mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. yeah, no apologies. Yeah. Bravo, yeah. Annie, we love you absolutely. Um, so yeah, so the, uh, Rockabye is. Uh, I mean, you know, I'll have great hair. <laughs> <laughs> We were in rehearsal. We started rehearsals already. And um, Sunday, I guess, we were doing a lot of work with a couple of the designers, um, Jackie being one of them. And we had this great costume parade. Jackie likes to have kind of group fittings where we're all sort of trying on bits and pieces. And we all kind of show up in the room together and she can look at the color ideas and the style ideas and make sure that they're gelling and what she wants, the story that she wants to tell with that. And it was so exciting to see my fellow players and myself uh, making those connections and playing around with that. Um, I think Jackie is a genius. (laughs) And it's going to be really fun to look at from a fashion point of view, just seeing what she's come up with for all of us. I think and, that's and a, everybody looks so great. I think that's looks a great so... idea the the group the group parade like that, especially early on, so that everybody gets a sense of of what they all look like, how everybody fits together. Um, and the costume parade yeah. is always is always really fun in any show. To get to do it early is 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 a really great idea. Well, it just gives a different kind of information. Like often shows that I've done in the past and with other designers, and this is no slight at all at all. But often we don't see each other's costumes until, you know, tech dress, and which is exciting and kind of um, mind blowing. And you go, oh, uh, what are my lines again? Oh, yeah, you look amazing. Um, so, but to have this information now, just knowing that part of the story that is being told by our entire team is kind of thrilling to be in on it as well as the actor. I love that. Yeah. I really love it. Yeah. It's the other thing that, that, that often, like I've been in shows where I don't get the costume until like a couple of days before maybe the tech dress or something like that. And suddenly, exactly, and yeah. suddenly you find out, Oh, what I've been doing, I can't move that way in this costume. Um, <laughs> I have to change the way I have to change a lot because there's, I don't know, like a cape or something. And suddenly you're, you're having to make adjustments. So it's good to know what those things are. Really it early sure on, is. yeah. I mean, I have a really kick-ass pair of boots. Just wait for it, Phil. <laughs> I'm going to have to practice in those puppies. <laughs> Good but pair of boots, yeah. That part of it was really exciting. And we also got to work with, um, we were working with our sound designer, Adrian Shepard Gowinski, and he has composed um late 80s, early 90s rock anthem that was Sidney Jones' song that launched her. He didn't have to do that. 
but he did. He created this song. And so I got to record it the other day on Sunday with Adrian. And it was just super fun. And not just me, because I am for sure not a trained singer. But one of our guest artists in the show is Julie. I don't know if you know Julie, but she was just in Gypsy at the Shaw. And she's an astonishing actress and an astonishing singer. And so um, Adrian had Julie and myself recording this song. And I know he's going to do some, you know, delicious technical wizardry and make it sound really, really great. But that was so fun, too, just to be part of all of it in that way. Anyway, it's it's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you get to aside from the uh the the song, which again is pretty cool. It's great when when you get that extra information of like this is what the song that that broke this character and made them a huge star. You could do the show without it like you're saying, but it's really great to have. Um yeah. Are there is there other are you is there other uh rock and roll and rockabye that you're going to be performing or is it uh, sort of the recorded stuff? Well, in in um <laughs> it's not in the script, right? There's no actual performance in the script. There is a moment where Sydney is in Berlin, you know, about to start a concert. Um but there's no actual performance. So the fact that Adrian has created this song for Sydney and I know he wants to do some more recording which I actually don't know what that will be yet with me um I think gives you know again that the the entire piece that flavor of who she was when she became the star and who she is now he's uh he's pretty marvelous is Adrian yeah that's he's telling awesome. that story through the soundscape mm-hmm yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an exciting team. The The room is so warm. Rob Kempson, who's my co-artistic producer, he's directing it. And he has created this really warm, welcoming space. And we've got our resident artists in there. And we've got newcomers and new guest artists and people making their arc debuts. And it's just, it's a thrilling place to be in and the show there's so much humor in it and then it goes to really deep dark places and we all already just in the first few days because we only just started this past Thursday in rehearsals and already um we've got such a wonderful trust and sense of play and oh oh it's just it's so thrilling i am i'm excited for our audiences to see it i'm excited to go back to rehearsal tomorrow <laughs> uh <laughs> i really look forward to the time when i'm completely off book <laughs> i'm almost there i'm working really hard phil uh but it's yeah it's just it's a really warm room and that comes from rob you know setting that tone and and because so many of us have worked together in some capacity within ARC, especially, but also with the guests, artists um, working, I've worked with some of them in different capacities on different shows. Um, 
it's yeah, it's just uh Gosh, theater is fun. <laughs> it sure is. Um, <laughs> I highly recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you have been uh, a member of ARC. You've been a resident artist at ARC for 18 years. Um, almost 20. Almost yeah. 20, mm-hmm. yeah. And you, mm-hmm. you were co-artistic producer at ARC uh, since 2020. Um, Correct. Tell me about ARC and, and what it means to you. Yeah. Um, well, ARC was uh, founded almost 25 years ago. John Neville, Alan Jordan, and Chuck Shimada were the three founding members of ARC. And their mandate was to produce uh, shows from the international canon, rarely produced shows from the international canon, which um, is very much along the lines of our mandate now, which is the Canadian premiere premieres of shows from the international canon. And um, when I started up with ARC, there's, you know, there's been people, personnel change, all that kind of thing, as always happens in a living, breathing thing, which I believe a theater company is. Um, But I was brought in and I seem to have stuck around the longest. And part of it is just i i have a keen sense of loyalty <laughs> and i'm excited by the work that arc produces and arc has given me opportunities to play roles that i don't know that i would be cast in perhaps now i would be cast in them because i've been around for 35 years but at the time when i began I was suddenly given so many challenging and exciting roles to dive into with the trust that, yeah, you can do this, Deb. And uh, that was pretty thrilling. So to be able to, I also love reading plays. And now because of our mandate and because I'm in this leadership position, I get to read and research plays from around the world. And I'm always excited to know what a country is talking about and thinking about and exploring. And that we at ARC get to take a look at these plays and find a way to contextualize them in a Canadian sense which I find exciting. And part of the way we do that is we have what we call the open room, which is integral now to every production we do. And the open room is this week-long workshop that we have a few months out before we start rehearsals. So we've got the scripts, we've got our cast assembled, but we haven't started rehearsals yet. And we gather together in a room or over Zoom if it's, you know, COVID times. And um, we invite what we call community collaborators into the room with us. And these are people who are not actors, not necessarily in the arts business at all, but their lived experience, their careers have something to do with a theme in the play that we're about to produce. So, for example, with Rockabye, we have three community collaborators, 
And one, uh, Jeff Key, is a PR and crisis management person. And he is the, that kind of person who, you know, foresees the horrible issue happening and will coach his people how to respond in a way that saves them. <laughs> um, and I, that there's a, a role in the play in Rockabye that Sergio Dezio plays. He's he's my manager. And, um, you know, we all could have done with someone like a Jeff Key <laughs> to help us along. <laughs> and then we have um, Layla Hebden, who is a manager of big stars, including Shania Twain. So, you know, Rob and I, we well, we had to go to the Shania Twain concert as research. You know, we just, we had to. Yeah, it was really tough, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, you know, we've got to get it right. Sacrifices too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was all through um, Kyra Harper, who is also in our play, delighted to finally work with the wonderful Kyra Harper. Um, she was able to connect us with with Layla. So we have Layla, who will be Zooming in this week, actually, to talk to us about what it is to manage um, a superstar. And then our third community collaborator um, is Allison Petty. And Allison is a former stage manager and now is not doing that. But she has lived experience with international adoption. And that's the only other clue I'm going to give you into our show. <laughs> <laughs> so, but Allison was able to speak with us very openly and very clearly about her experience of going through that process of adopting internationally. And so these people are in with us from the beginning to help us, to help inform the script for us, to give us different perspectives, to um, allow for that deeper, truer sense of what our characters are experiencing. and. I I just love that this initiative that we do, The Open Room, it started in 2016 when we were doing a play called Pomona that Chris Stanton was directing. And um, within that play, Aviva Armour-Ostroff and I were playing sex workers. And um, Chris invited in two women from, I believe the place is called Maggie's Place, two sex workers, to just talk with us about their lived experience. And we read a scene for them between my character and Aviva's character. We read this scene. And these amazing women went, yeah, the words are right, but we don't talk to each other like that. Because Aviva and I were um, kind of really diving into it and you should see all the hand gestures I'm doing right now, <laughs> Phil. It's it's a, like I'm really explaining myself well with my hands right now. <laughs> and these women said, yeah, no, we're much more pragmatic in the way we speak with each other. And so we read the scene again after they gave us that information. We read the scene again and our brains exploded. It was so helpful and insightful. And true, truer, truer, truer. 
And we knew that we had hit on something really exciting in that inviting community members in to work with us with us at this beginning stage mm. was something that we will never let go of now. Mm. Yeah. And I'm really proud of ARC for recognizing how important those community voices are, those community collaborators. And I can't imagine doing a show now without that process. Mm-hmm. And being able to have that process, you know, three or four months before we start rehearsals gives us that time to let all of that information percolate and, you know, drip down and and then we come to the rehearsal process proper and we've already got this wealth of information it's thrilling now this is a something that's really unique that 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 arc does and mm-hmm. uh, um what do you think is preventing other companies from doing that is it simply resources is it is it is it money is it like what 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 is it that 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 prevents that from happening well it's a great question i mean I would like to think that perhaps some people haven't thought of it and, you know, and that's fair. And in, but honestly, you hit the nail on the head, Phil, resources, you know, money is tight and we pay our people to do this open room process. And so when we're please asking from the granting bodies, uh, we always include that aspect because we do want to honor people's time and we want to pay everybody, mm-hmm. including our community collaborators. So uh, I would imagine that resources plays a huge role in it. And, you know, the resources are so hard to come by. And there are so many very worthy projects and companies out there. And there's so little money. And to be honest, ARC has done really well with getting project funding from the Canada Council and the Ontario Arts Council. And this year we got zero. And it was a bit of a shock, let me tell you, Um, especially because we've been so successful for about a decade. But we're okay and we're still doing our show and everybody's being paid, of course. But resources are hard. And I think, yeah, if only we had more support in that way, hello, government, um, I would imagine more companies would want to be able to have this opportunity to explore in the way that we are. Now, as far as the resources go, you know, you alluded to um, the funding bodies. Um, is that, you know, COVID had a huge impact on theater. It had an impact everywhere, sure but did. theater as a as an industry requires that people are in the room, which mm-hmm. you know couldn't do for a number of years. Um, mm-hmm. um, and do, are do you feel like the the impact of COVID is that? Um, audiences are choosing not to come back or that they're too used to watching things. I mean, people were already watching things on streaming, but do you think it has, uh, you know, fed uh, steroids to the streaming bug or, (laughs) or what do you think is, what is the impact of COVID on the industry that you see? 
You know, uh, Phil, if you had asked me this question like six months to a year ago, I would say that, yeah, the streaming, you know, people are comfortable in their homes. I I get it. I am too. And there's so much good TV out there. Um, But, and, and to be able to just choose to entertain yourself in that way, I fully understand, especially because we couldn't get out for a, a couple of years. But it feels like people are returning. I know that there are a number of people who are not, perhaps because they are older and they want to now use their entertainment dollars elsewhere, or they're older and they just don't want to go out in January, or, (laughs) um, you know, there's lots of reasons. I do think we have lost audience for sure. But we were isolated for so long. And now it feels like in the last few months, from my perspective, as an audience member, because I love going to theater, and it feels like we are recognizing how much we need each other and we're craving getting back into these experiences of live theater. And I'm starting to see companies and shows that are swelling and have to extend because they've got so many people who want to see them. And I think that is, I mean, it's so satisfying and it's so uh, makes my heart sing. And I hope that that continues. And I hope that because that is starting to grow, I hope that people then are also recognize, well, we love that show down there. Uh, let's go down that road and check out that show and that they start to, that it feeds itself, you know, that they start, people start to get, go further and further out because they just want to be with people. Yeah. Certainly, I understand that there are some people who really liked being at home, and I I completely get that and and prefer that quieter life. But I think for a lot of us, yeah, just just wanting to be with others again and sharing an experience, which theater provides. We're all in the room together. We've all heard and seen the same thing, but we've all received it differently because we're all different human beings. And then we get to talk with each other about it and live in that experience. So fingers crossed. <laughs> I mean, you used, I have you used the word experience twice in that, in that description. And I really <laughs> think that, that, um, experience, that the experience is something that we need to lean into as, as theater companies, theater makers, because, People will pay for experiences. People will pay for a room they just take a picture in if it's cool. Um, mm-hmm, they want to mm-hmm. have the experience. And I think some companies are doing a great job of, of of talking about the experience, of giving a sense of the experience. And some companies 
have not done that at all. They just put the name on the poster, name of the show on the poster, and the name of the uh, – I could think of a couple of companies that do this. Name of the show. Here's a, our strange artwork that describes it. Here's the author. Come see the show. Um, and maybe I know what that show is, but that's not going to bring in people who are not already theater goers. And so – um, but if we don't talk about the experience, if we don't let people know that this is an experience like no other, they stay home mm-hmm. or they or they go to see uh, an immersive production of pictures projected on a wall of Van Gogh's work or something like that. Um, sure, sure. Because it is experience. And I think that that um, it, it's to give people the idea of 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 having like you this this is going to be something you're going to be talking about afterwards mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing that i think brings people out um i agree but again i think some of that has to do with resources you know there may be companies who wish they could do more but they can only afford that poster mm-hmm. that says here's my play written by this person directed by this person la 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 um because again like m- money is so hard to come by absolutely and all all we can do is keep trying. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and, and some of the companies and, you know, that I see doing this, though, the, these are companies, these are not like little independent companies. These are massive companies that that, that do this. Um, and so it's do not- Do this in terms, in terms do of Do this like, in terms of like, like here's the poster? Here, like the poster is like, here's the name, here's here's the author, gotcha. and here's a little funny artwork. Um, and, right. you know, and then other companies like really- and again, it is resources. The Mervish productions are always going to do really well because Mervish has a ton of money because they're for profit, and they only do this stuff that's that's safe and 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 is going to like bring people in paying lots and lots of money. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not reasonable for a lot of for the average theater goer to go regularly because that's expensive. But it sure is, yeah. But I mean, the the I think that that is something that our industry has not yet. Um, really grappled with as far as um, the results of COVID and people, you know, people are going to see things and experience things uh, and we need to get them, we need to let them know like what their, their theater experience is going to be. Yeah. I mean, I th- I think we're r- still definitely reeling from mm-hmm. COVID yeah. and COVID is not over nope. and COVID still so greatly affects our industry. The number of shows, you know, in the past couple of months where performances have been canceled yeah. or understudies have gone on or the understudies also sick. So they yeah. have to get somebody else in coming in book in hand. Yeah. Like, COVID is still so present. We are rehearsing in masks because mm-hmm. we're this tiny little company without the resources to pay for an extra person to come in as a swing or, you know, we can't afford to lose a performance. No. So we're going to be feeling the effects of COVID for a long time. Absolutely. And I think that, yeah, all we can... <laughs> I keep going back to hope, Phil. All we can do is invite people mm-hmm. and yes to to hopefully provide them with an experience. Yeah. And if it's their first time and they go, hey, wait a minute, this is different from when I went to that theater over there and yes. just sat and watched and then went home. Yeah. And some people we'll be ready to receive that and we'll want to explore more. And those are the people that we need to 
find and tap into and invite. And for us at ARC, that is, uh, you know, we're continually trying to grow our audience. Mm -hmm. And when we stumbled upon this amazing, we didn't stumble upon it. It was Chris Stanton's idea (laughs) to bring in these women from Maggie's Place. And we knew it was a genius idea. But when we discovered just how potent and important it could be, that then allows us to, in a bigger way and perhaps in a a more personal way for our community collaborators, to then invite those community collaborators' communities in to see the show, knowing that a friend of theirs, a a family member of theirs, has has a stake in this piece. Mm -hmm. And so growing the audience in that way. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean, the you're right about the effects of COVID and and how how it is still causing havoc in the industry. Um, you know, in, I, I'm a supply teacher for the Toronto Board mm-hmm. too. Uh, in between gigs, I love that job. I was a kindergarten teacher today, um, on my day off. Um, <laughs> but you know, even though and teachers go down with COVID a lot. School continues like yeah. it's it's just or somebody in a, um, an office job gets COVID. They go away for a few days, come back and it's the work has still happened. Mm-hmm. It's so different for theater because it really can stop the show. Yeah. So, yeah, there are a lot of shows that, like you're saying, can't have a swing. There's yeah. just no budget for that, and so correct one person getting sick will uh, will 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 shut the whole thing down for a night or more. Yeah, it, yeah, very true. I was in um, Sudbury just in the fall, rehearsing a show, Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, and after the first week of rehearsal, I tested positive, which was shocking. I hadn't been anywhere. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know. COVID doesn't care. It'll find anyone and everyone. Um, And I tested positive. And of course, there was that moment of concern for everybody going, "Uh uh-oh, we got to make sure that, do our best to make sure that nobody else gets it. And luckily, I was the only one out of this huge cast. I was the only one who got sick. And I was out for only a few days. And then I was in with mask on and, you know. Um, it didn't hit me nearly as hard as it did the first time mm-hmm. I got it. Um, but, and they were we were early enough in the process that they could work around my mm-hmm. character. There was plenty to do without me. Right. Yeah. But that was just luck. Yeah. Yeah. Just luck. I got my first bout uh, being out in, in Red Deer, Alberta, doing a performance of a show of mine. I was in a small group. There were two two solo shows and reps. So basically the people I interacted with were – uh, the the actor in the other show, the artistic director, and um, th- those are the people that I acted that I was around most. And then a couple of times out with people, but mostly just in a room with the audience. And I got right. COVID. Yeah, nobody else did. Well, I frantically, knows? I frantically was like, uh, "Who? I got it. I tested positive." And this is after I got home, but I was like tr- trying to tell them, like, test yourselves. But yes, yeah, they were fine. Yeah. I got it, and. Uh, um, I, you know, I was like, wow, I first time and I don't want to do that again. No, no, it's not fun. 
I don't recommend it. No. <laughs> I also don't recommend it. Um, now, you are um, you, you you're you're married to Oliver Dennis, who is also an actor. And I certainly am. And you have 32 years strong. Dang, you've got two kids. And we do. Um, I'm curious because, uh, uh, you know, uh, a lot of times there are people who say don't date actors. Don't, you know, and, and, and being um, uh, in a relationship with an actor, especially when you are an actor, that that can cause that could sometimes cause uh, uh, some friction between between two people. Um, how have you and Oliver managed to keep your marriage together while well, you're both in the <laughs> industry um, for, for so many years? Love. (laughs) I mean, have you met Oliver Dennis? He's amazing. (laughs) Um, For us, you know, it it works because we do understand what each of us is going through. Every time we're in rehearsal, we we understand the hours, we understand the commitment, we understand um, the focus we help each other run lines. You know, it's actually fantastic. And um, we've been able to, when we first had kids, I chose not to work as much. I wanted to be home more with the kids. I wanted to be the primary caregiver. Um, Oliver at that time was really busy with Soul Pepper. So he was, you know, bringing home the bacon and I was hanging out with the babies. And and that was perfect for us. I know everybody every everybody has a different story, but for us that's what really worked. And then once the kids got older and they were in school, um that's when I started to work a bit more and more. And you know, half of my work is in the city and half of my work is across the country. And it wasn't until the kids were in school that I would, that I started to take uh, those out of town gigs. I would only do one a year uh, at that point. And we've been able to balance that. We've, we've certainly had to use um, babysitters from time to time if both of us were in a show at the same time. But mostly speaking, we've been able to spell each other off. And um, there was a time when Oliver was working so much and I wasn't working very much at all. And uh, yes, it was a little bit hard on my creative heart because I wanted to work and the work just wasn't coming to me at that time. But there was never, um, Oliver and I have never felt in competition with each other or jealous of each other's careers. Um I think he is an incredible actor, so gifted. He should just work all the time. <laughs> and he's pretty fond of me, too, as an actor. So <laughs> right now, I am very gratefully and very happily and very luckily riding a lovely wave. I've been busy for a couple of years now, pretty much nonstop. And Oliver is just delighted and supportive and his work has slowed down a little bit and phil he is an amazing cook (laughs) (laughs) i hardly have to cook at all and so you know 
this is a really good life that I lead. But we're very supportive of each of each other, and we've um, yeah, and we help each other and guide each other in kind and generous ways, and um, our relationship is is really equal. I lucked out. I got a good one. Sounds like it. Now, how did you meet? Yeah. Doing a play. (laughs) Richard Greenblatt cast us in a play at Young People's Theatre back in 1991. Mm. Um, And we actually did a workshop for it uh, because it was a Dennis Foon piece called Mirror Game. And it had been written as a one-act touring show, and Dennis wanted to expand it for the main stage of YPT. And so we did a workshop of it uh, in November of 1990. And so that's when Oliver and I met. And Oliver was performing in a show with Richard also performing as well. So he they were double-dutying. And, and um, I went to see the show that they were performing in during that week when we were workshopping and Oliver and I shared a cab ride home with uh, someone else, Bruce McPhee. And apparently, so the story goes, when I got out of the cab, Oliver said, um, um, I'm just trying to remember the words. Uh, something about goodbye, Deb Drakeford. And then he turned to Bruce and said, I mean, Deb Drake for Dennis, I'm going to marry that girl. (laughs) And, you know, flash forward a few months, we're in rehearsals and uh, we were, um, there's four of us in the cast and we were all out for a drink together. And the other two, I don't know, stepped off somewhere. And I looked at Oliver and I said, I'm really attracted to you. (laughs) And that was that. (laughs) That was that. We started dating pretending that nobody knew we were dating come on everybody knew <laughs> that's the that is uh, that is the magic of a cast somebody's some couple is trying to pretend like they're not and everybody knows they are everybody knew it was obvious i mean we we're just like puppy dog eyes at each other the whole time and uh and then we were married within nine months we just knew that's awesome. And that was 32 years ago. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> but yes, Richard Greenblatt, he's he's responsible. And he reminds us that he's responsible. <laughs> <laughs> um, just as we start to, to to draw to a close in the conversation, um, you earlier we were talking about, you know, the, the song that's been created for the for for uh, mm-hmm. the show. Um, we've been talking about you're looking forward to uh, the amazing boots, the costumes, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, but aside from those things, what are you most looking forward to when audiences get to experience Rockabye? I am looking forward to the potential for these big conversations. This is not a simple play. There's complex things that happen. I'm looking forward to that potential of those conversations. I'm also super excited for the audiences to see these players that we've assembled. 
I mean, besides myself, we've got Nabil Trebusi, who is also an ARC resident artist. We've got Sergio Dezio. We've got Christopher Allen. We've got Shauna Thompson. We've got Julie Lumsden. And we've got Kyra Harper. We've got these, you know, different generations of theater animals, <laughs> theater artists. And Shauna Thompson, for example, was a, a classmate of my daughter's at NTS. So we've got these deliciously talented, beautiful young people with, you know, those of us who are just a little bit older <laughs> and Kyra being a bit older than that. And to have these different generations of theater artists and everything that all of these very smart people bring to this story, I'm excited for the audiences to experience that. Um, yeah, I, I, it's such a great team. And I'm excited for the audience to experience uh, the design. We've got Jareth Lee as our lighting designer too, who is truly wonderful. And the set that Jackie has designed. Well, I'm actually a bit, nervous about it. And Phil, when you come to see the show playing at the Factory Theatre, January 26th to February 11th, when you come to see it, you'll take a look at the set and you'll go, oh yeah, that's why Deb was nervous. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, the story is very provocative. It's very smartly written. And Rob is doing a beautiful job of guiding us. And um, yeah, but this group of actors, it's its pretty special. Mm. It's pretty special. I had the pleasure of working with Christopher Allen, uh, I was going to say earlier this year, but it's a new year, in <laughs> March of 2023, um, doing a show together at the Tarragon. And he's a marvel. He's a marvel. And I'm just getting to know Julie Lumsden, and I just adore her. Everybody, everybody's fantastic. Getting to play with, you know, Shauna, who is a friend of my daughter's, that's just thrilling. <laughs> that's awesome. It sounds like an incredible, incredible show, and it will be an incredible experience for, for, for everyone. I believe it will be. Yeah. I believe it will be. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for giving me your time tonight. Thank you, Phil, so much. It was a pleasure just chatting with you. Appreciate it. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. 
See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.